0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Teco. And this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground, moving the needle in public health and medicine.
1: The American Cancer Society says 71% of cancer deaths come from types of cancer that have no recommended screening. But we can catch things earlier and we have a the chance then of making a significant difference. Doctors and breast cancer awareness advocates remind you, even during this pandemic, you still need to get that regular mammogram screening.
0: Using sophisticated modeling techniques, researchers argued that less than 10 to 30 percent of a lifetime risk of getting cancer was due to intrinsic risk factors or the bad luck. The rest was things you can change. February is Cancer Prevention Month. Nearly 40% of Americans will be diagnosed with cancer at some point during their lifetimes, meaning if it's not you, it will be a friend or loved one. The good news is that continued advancements in medical research has led to more people surviving cancer. But what if we could prevent cancer altogether? Is it possible? The NIH says that only 5 to 10% of all cancer cases can be attributed to genetics, whereas the remaining 90 to 95% have the roots in environmental and behavioral determinants. Yet, there seems to be so much excitement and investment around genomics, gene editing, and less focus on preventative measures like diet and exercise. Are we spending enough time on preventing cancer? How should we think about balancing these two areas? Today, I'm talking to Jody Hoyos, who is the President and Chief Operating Officer of the Prevent Cancer Foundation, the only US based nonprofit solely dedicated to cancer prevention and early detection. Prior to joining the foundation, Jody served as the Vice President of the Association of Women's Health, Obstetric, and Neonatal Nurses. Jody, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you, Hallie. I'm so happy to be here. It's a great topic, and I'm so pumped that you're talking about it today.
0: Yes. Well, for today's episode, I actually asked some of my followers for questions that they have for you, and I got so many. There's a lot of curiosity around this topic, and I wanted to just start with the big question, is cancer
1: prevention possible? This is a tough one, and it it can be really polarizing. So I'm going to take a time and give a little bit of a thorough explanation on that. Really, cancer prevention is the action taken to lower the risk of getting cancer. Um, So I would never say never, but it's not likely we'll ever be able to prevent cancer entirely. There are hundreds of types of cancers, and there are many causes, and some of those are in our control, and some of them are not. Um, and it's really important that we're talking about cancer prevention that no one should feel blame about it or they should feel that they they were the cause of their cancer. That's a terrible way to feel when you're facing um, a cancer diagnosis and stigma and shame are significant barriers for people getting screened and treated so you know if we look at something like lung cancer screening less, less than six percent of people who are el- eligible are getting that screening and there's a lot Of that is related to stigma and shame. Um, So as we go through some of this discussion, I just want people to take that away, that cancer is not your fault. But let's talk about some of the things that we can do to um, lower our risk of getting cancer. And some of that, you know, a a big um, part of what we can do is maintaining a healthy lifestyle. It's avoiding exposure to to known cancer-causing substances, taking medicines and vaccines that prevent cancer from developing. Um so about 50% of cancer deaths are considered preventable. And when I say things like maintaining a ha- healthy lifestyle, I can feel the eye rolls happening. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. uh, particularly <laughs> particularly it's pretty, right now. Pretty vague. <laughs> Very relative it's, it's, too. It's vague, it's relative and it's hard and it's this has been a really tough two years for people. So, you know, when we look at talking about healthy lifestyle, when people are under enormous physical and mental stress um, that's occurred during the pandemic, people are smoking more, people are starting to smoke that never smoked, they're drinking more, um, drug use is, is up, uh, people have gained weight. So all of that is a factor in our risk for getting cancer. But most importantly is there's not judgment here. Tomorrow is a new day. Uh, there are things that people can do, exercise, eating better, you know, decreasing their drinking that will improve their overall health, but start tomorrow. It doesn't have to be a walk of shame and feeling like you haven't started now, so it's too late. Sure.
0: How much of maintaining a healthy
1: lifestyle
0: is really a solution only for the, the worried wealthy well?
1: Oh, it's, it's really universal. I think, you know, there's, there's certainly the issue that, that the worried well has more access to healthier foods, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, um, exercise classes, potentially the time in the day to exercise, but it's a factor for everyone. So it influences absolutely everyone's risk. And someone had asked about getting
0: tested for cancer. Should testing be reactive like if you spot a lump or are there screenings you should be asking your doctor about that might not be on the standard panel like a you know like a pap smear that women kind of have
1: an idea from their OBs how often they need to go. Yeah, yeah I, you know, it's interesting cuz I, I, I many women actually aren't sure when they should be going for their pap smear. So it's a great great question. Um it should definitely be proactive instead of reactive, so getting screened before there are signs of, or symptoms present. Uh, when cancer is detected early, and many times that means before there's any symptoms, um, it increases the chances for successful treatment, and it may mean you have less extensive treatment, more treatment options, but the five-year survival rate is almost 90% when cancer is found in early stages and that drops down to 21% when it's found in later stages. So that's a big difference, wow. and you want to really get ahead of it.
0: Yeah. How, how do we know what sort of screens we should be asking for?
1: So there are many guidelines, and they can be quite confusing. I would recommend that people take a look at um, preventcancer.org back on the books. We do have a comprehensive list of the screenings you should be getting, And it is based on gender and age. Um, And that's for people at average risk. If you have family history or other factors that put you at a higher risk, then that's something you need to to talk to a provider about. It is a lot of information, particularly as you get older, because more screenings get added to the list. Yeah.
0: What would you say to someone who thinks that perhaps the standard criteria that the CDC has set out for testing uh, isn't enough? They want more screening than is recommended. Would Would you suggest that they find other ways to get those tests, or would you suggest that they chill out and not worry and that the standard screenings are sufficient?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a great question. So it it depends on why they're worried. And I would always advocate for someone to be, to be a proponent of their own health. I have not had a cancer screening recommended to me by a provider. So I was the one who asked about my colon cancer screening and I'm well above the screening age of 45. So I think it's important to um, know thyself Are you concerned because there's something going on that doesn't feel quite right, that there's a family history that you know about your body, or are you concerned just because you're feeling anxious in general about your health? And that's important because you don't want to send yourself down an expensive journey that's not going to ever be quelled. You know, there's always going to be more, there's hundreds of types of cancers, as I mentioned before. So it's it's very hard to get ahead of all of it. The good news is there are blood cancer early detection tests that are coming. Uh, One of them is available commercially now for people over a a certain age. Um, It is not covered by insurance at this point. But screenings are coming that are able to detect more than one type of cancer at once. The challenge when you're concerned about something now is where do you start? Are you concerned about breast cancer, cervical cancer, lung cancer? Each of those has a separate pathway for you. So as we move in innovation and have access to multi-cancer screening tests, it really does change our ability to take control of our own screenings and understanding what's happening with our bodies. Mm-hmm. What well, false positives, I assume, are an issue there? Yes, it's definitely an issue there, with, as with any screening. Um, and you know, there are follow-ups that have to happen when that does happen, when you have a false positive just like for existing screenings now that also cause a lot of anxiety. So you want to make sure that you're with a provider that understands your journey and what you need to be tested for. So and support you because false positives are very scary as are real positives. From a public health perspective, what
0: is more powerful early screening or behavior change? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah that is a very hard question i don't know i i I could not there is no right answer to that question. They're both extremely positive they We need to have both of them. I would say though that behavior change having more accessible behavior change and normalizing more healthy behaviors is would be extremely powerful because it puts the power back in the hands of all of us. So, you know, we have an opportunity to change things. Both of us are sitting at a desk. I'm not going to speak for you. I can speak for me. I'm sitting at a desk all day staring at screens. Oh yeah. That's my life. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Confirmed. We are advocates for public health and healthcare. Something is wrong. So... If you and I said, "Okay, we're going to do this podcast together," let's do it while we're walking. What would happen? I mean, would the po- we, would would things start to break? Maybe, um, but we have to start taking steps to normalizing um, a healthy lifestyle. This we're not there yet, and that's coming from big players in public health. Why am sure. I on the desk all day? I don't know. Why are you at the desk yeah. all day? <laughs>
0: Yeah. I've been trying to do, um, at least one walking meeting a day. And obviously when it's cold, um, that's a lot harder, but, um, it is, it's, it's different because when you're in the office, I feel like at least you're moving around the office, especially if you work at a large building or, um, you know, have to walk to work. If you're in a metropolitan area working from home, I have days where I have to think really hard about the last time I left the house. Right. So right. it's interesting to think about how COVID has impacted those of us who have, um, you know, knowledge economy jobs where we are at our desk and how that's changed. Right. Right. Yeah.
1: And do you think we're, we were where we needed to be before COVID?
0: Probably, probably not. Uh, yeah. But, I, you know, I, I, I do feel like um, large companies, so those of us who work at large companies, there are wellness efforts, so you'll see recommendations to take the stairs at, uh, you know, large downtown office building that mm-hmm. suggests, uh, you know, ways to make small little changes that you know add up over time. Um, you know, smaller companies, if you work at a, you know, mom and pop company or a startup, are less likely to have those sort of wellness nudges around the office. But I do think larger companies, at that point, at least, had several tools that they would use to encourage healthier behaviors, whether, you know, what is available in the cafeteria to, um, you know, ergonomic experts that can support, you know, your desk setup. Right. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I think all, you know, if we could all try to make some changes there, I think it could be a, a make a big difference and be very powerful. Yeah. If I had to choose, I think that would be yeah. the most powerful thing we could do.
0: Well, so, so on the topic of behavior change, um, a lot of people have questions about diet and how much diet matters, if it's too late to change how we eat, which earlier you said, no, it's not too late. And then specifics. I think there are so many headlines that we see that change. Um, people are curious, really, what's the truth around different food products like meat, sugar, soy, um, organic, what is kind of the latest research say about
1: these uh, areas of food and what we should try to avoid? So here's what we know. And food research is challenging. So that's why you see changes coming out frequently, as more research is done, sometimes conflicting information, it's very hard to replicate um, and to have everything people eat be standardized from that same and how, you know, where the fruit came from, um, where the meat came from. It's a challenge, but here is what we know. We know that um, the recommendations for diet are to eat a lot of fruit, vegetables, beans, whole grains, to limit red meat, and foods that are high in salt, uh, and cut out processed meats entirely. And that means things like hot dogs, so- sausages, um, highly processed meats. Avoid drinks with added sugar. Uh, you know, A study in 2021 found that three servings of vegetables, and that does not include starchy vegetables like potatoes, and two servings of fruit, which are not juice. So your fruit serving should not come through juice because of the sugar every day resulted in a 10% lower risk of death from cancer. Wow. Yeah. Um, The other thing we know is that drinking alcohol is linked to several cancers, which includes breast, colorectal, esophageal, oral, and liver. So if you drink, limit your drinking to no more than one drink a day if you're a woman and no more than one or two if you're a man. So right now the research is showing that even drinking small amounts increases your risk of cancer.
0: And does that that change if it's wine versus liquor or just one drink either.
1: Just one drink either. Okay.
0: Cause I would imagine yeah. wine is in my mind, wine seems
1: healthier than I know,
0: I know. like a glass of whiskey. <laughs> right. I don't know. Maybe that's just what the Italians want us to think.
1: Right. And there's, and then the, and you'll see different headlines about it too. Yeah.
0: Um, I've seen headlines that say that a glass of wine a day extends your
1: life. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So it is a challenge, but yeah. Alcohol is something we just need to, to have on our radar. Yeah, for sure.
0: In terms of lifestyle, are there wireless technologies and accessories that we should be avoiding? Things like our cell phones, Um, should we be putting them on airplane mode, you know, when they're next to us on our nightstand? Should we be avoiding our standing in front of the microwave, looking at the food that's turning around? (laughs) What kind of things, um, is there actual evidence around that we should avoid?
1: Due to cancer risk. Right. Currently, there is not evidence to support a connection between wireless technology or microwaves and cancer. So, that is what we know right now. Interesting. And cell phones, too? Cell phones, too. Really? Well, and, you know, again, if you, so if you look at some of the different sources like American Cancer Society and others, that is not, that is not something, or NIH, there is currently no cited evidence connecting those. Interesting. I still do airplane mode at night. <laughs> I, just, I, I don't know. know why it feels better. I know. And I think there's, there's so much else too that do I think, and this is, this is me, this is not, I've not done a study on this. I've not read a study on this. But when you look at the um, something like having a cell phone next to you and your exposure to that stress, both the light it has on your eyes, like the notifications that come in, does that elevate our stress level? Does it have an impact on our body um, in ways that we would not normally have? Yes, one hundred percent. Does that link to disease or other other issues? I think we have to take that very seriously about the impact on our overall health. If there's no direct cancer to connect uh, connection to cancer right now, what is the link to our overall health? And that matters. Um, yeah put it on airplane, but put it, shut it off, put it in another room. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's really, um, standing in front of the microwave, waiting for your food, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe we can sit down, take a walk. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's part of it too. We'll be right back
0: after the break. So earlier, you mentioned food research being challenging. A widely reported paper in Nature showed that scientists could only replicate six out of the 53, quote unquote, landmark cancer studies, which was shocking to all of us because it questioned the reproducibility and legitimacy of cancer science. How do you view that problem? Has, is that evolving? Are we starting to better understand the flaws in our existing research?
1: Oh, there's, there's so much positive that's happened um, since that time in cancer research. We are understanding more. Uh, it, these studies can be difficult to reproduce. You know, if, um, when you're talking about, you know, food studies, as I mentioned earlier, just reproducing and getting the exact same serving size and source for each type of food you're studying that someone is, is eating is extremely challenging. Um, but, but that aside, there is so much more we know now. And uh, the most important thing we can do uh, is continuing to invest in, in research and build trust uh, in the research process so that everyone from different communities is represented in our research. And we are not there yet. There is massive distrust in our research process, and that needs to be earned. So Nixon launched the
0: war on cancer in 1971, and 51 years later, cancer is still a leading cause of death for Americans. Uh, if you could go back in time, what would
1: you tell Nixon? At first, I would say thank you. It was an important initiative, and there's been tremendous progress in 50 years, been an overall decline in cancer mortality, which is thanks in large part to a decrease in smoking and progress in prevention and early detection and treatment. Ideally, we would have done more in the last 50 years to address disparities in health care. And so if I could go back, I would say, let's bring that this issue out now. Can we start collecting data that would address the disparities that we're seeing so that we'd be better positioned to take action now? We have information to take action now. We need to do that. But if we had started that recognition earlier, I would like to think we'd be in a better position than where we are now. Sure.
0: So speaking of disparities, I wanted to know how much it matters where you're treated. So you know, if you get cancer, is it worth doing everything you can to be seen at an MD Anderson or Sloan Kettering, um, or are kind of all cancer centers created equally,
1: and you should go to the one closest to home? That's a tough question. And so the the MD Anderson, Sloan carrying the, the facilities you're, you're mentioning are uh, National Cancer Institute designated centers, which was actually came out of the National Cancer Act of 1971. There's 71 of those centers across the country, which means for the vast majority of people, they are treated in the community facilities that are close to where they live. They're just those NCI designated centers are not accessible for everyone or or necessarily desirable when you're talking about traveling out of state or far away for your uh, treatments or, you know, um, even second opinions. Those facilities are recognized um, because they meet standards for being transdisciplinary, for state-of-the-art research, um, and great approaches to prevention and diagnosing and treatment. But the the most important factor is that you are being seen and that you are comfortable with the care that you are getting. So, making sure that it is something financial toxicity, concern about the now what am I going to do? I just got a diagnosis. How am I going to afford this? How am I going to continue to work? How am I going to manage this in my life? Is a number one feeling after people get a diagnosis. Like, what is going to happen to me and my family so it's got to be accessible and manageable to people but i will say that if you want a second opinion if you have a diagnosis and you want a second opinion don't be embarrassed about that don't be like don't feel like your doctor is going to be mad at you for asking about that get a second opinion if that's at an nci designated center that's that's great um if it's somewhere else that's great too
0: yeah why do you think people feel Shy around getting a second opinion. Why do they feel like it would offend their doctor? I've I've noticed this as well.
1: I've felt guilt just changing my hairdresser. <laughs> so I mean, true. You, you know, you have these loyalties so to true. people, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like sneaking around and making an appointment somewhere else. Like that, yeah. it, it's elevated on such a massive level sure. when you're talking about a major diagnosis and feeling like you are disappointing this person in power. Power, Some sort of loyalty.
0: Right, right. That you feel interesting. So tell us about your background and what ultimately led you to the work that you do at the Prevent Cancer Foundation. Sure.
1: So I've been in healthcare for almost 30 years. Um, I've done healthcare consulting for years across the country and then uh, worked in a membership society for labor and delivery NICU and women's health nurses. And then uh, came to the Prevent Cancer Foundation three years ago because I was really excited and moved by that, by the focus on looking at disease this far upstream. So what can we do to prevent it or catch it early? How can we focus more on wellness instead of sickness as a society? That really appealed to me. I You know, I've been in healthcare a long time and I am equally frustrated and hopeful about what we can do to improve our health system, healthcare system. It's, it's one, it's, it's a fascinating industry, as you know, and that hope and frustration really keeps me going. I do love it. And I believe in what we're doing.
0: And are you guys aiming for a cancer-free world? Is that the goal of the
1: foundation? We're aiming for a world where no one dies of cancer. So that is really our focus. Cancer is going to be with us, but can we get to a place where it's not so crippling and it's not killing people, that it's something we can live with successfully?
0: Yeah. Okay. So if a cancer-free world is not possible, but a cancer mortality rate of close to zero is, when, when do you think that we can have that dream by and what does it take to get there?
1: The when is, the when, I don't know. I'd like to say in the next 50 years, when we have our next discussion, when we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the war on cancer, we're celebrating the end of the war. So that is my hope, that that can be, that that can happen. Getting there is gonna take vast changes in the way we approach healthcare, vast changes. And that means focusing on wellness and when we talk about that far upstream for people, just having access to something like healthy food um, is critical in making sure that we can get to a place where no one dies of cancer. And what's your foundation's role in that? So we really focus across, across the gamut in making sure that there are, that there is always funding for, research on prevention and early detection. So some of the questions you had today, which is, what do we know? And that is, what we know is evolving and is such an important part in how we tackle this this monster. So we are funding the research to better understand prevention and wellness. Uh, We fund the community grants to make sure that there are localized, culturally appropriate initiatives in communities around the world to make sure that people have access um, to what it takes to stay healthy and get screened. Um, And then we educate people on what we know when we know it and advocate for legislation to ensure that there's access. So we do want to make sure that it's not just the worried well, that all populations have access to prevention and early detection. Amazing. How can people support your work? I'm open to anyone reaching out to me individually if they have questions or suggestions. Uh, If you're an organization doing... Prevention or early detection work, keep an eye out for our grant applications. Uh, and of course, if people would like to donate, uh, they can go to preventcancer.org. Jody, thank
0: you so much for your time today. And if anyone out there is interested in learning more about the Prevent Cancer Foundation, you can find them online. February is Cancer Prevention Month. So, It is a good time to kind of look at your cancer screening. Jody mentioned the CDC website. You can go there to see what screenings uh, you're eligible for. And we encourage you to stay safe and healthy. Thank you. Thank you, Hallie. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seely. Our intern is Antonella Sterniolo. Our host is Hallie Teco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seeley. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnote.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.